Dr. Charles Kupchin is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. He has served on the National Security Council for both the Clinton and Obama White Houses. Professor Kupchin has a doctorate and a master's degree from Oxford and an undergraduate degree from Harvard. He is an author of 10 books during his career. His latest is titled Isolationism, a history of America's efforts to shield itself from the world. And we ask him to give us his perspective on Vladimir Putin and his use of propaganda during the current war in Ukraine. Professor Charles Kupchin, I was listening to uh, Sputnik Radio the other day, and I heard you appear what was a program um, on um, RT, Russia Today Television, uh, with a woman named Oksana Boyko. And I'm going to run an excerpt of you on the show and then get you to respond to what you said and why you decided to go on this program. Glad you, you raised this issue of Putin's rationality because I'm someone who did see Putin as aggressive, as difficult, as expansionist, but as calculating, as rationalist. He took risks, but they tended to be relatively small risks at low cost, grabbing South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Crimea, Donbass, going into Syria, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, Libya. These were relatively oh, wait, small wait, wait, wait. efforts to he kind didn't of grab all of them. This, this is a misstatement. I mean, uh, there, there were Russia's involvement in all those territories, but they were different in nature. You know, South Ossetia is uh, not part of Russia at this point of time, just as Nagorno Karabakh, by the way. Libya is not part of Russia, neither is Syria. So, you know, let's, uh, let's you know, be differentiated for the sake of your own students. I think you don't want to lump all those there, Yeah. Yeah. South Ossetia and Abkhazia aren't that different from Crimea and Donbass. They're both land grabs into their neighbors' countries. Yes, I agree with you. Syria and Libya are different. But the point here is that these were relatively small operations. Going into Ukraine is different. The host, uh, Oksana Boyko, has her own program, and you decided to go on it. What was your reason? I think I'm probably one of the few Americans, certainly in the Washington community, that appears on on Russian TV, whether Russia Today, which is uh, in English and other foreign languages, or sometimes on Russian TV. And that's because I fear feel that if RT, if other Russian channels are willing to put on voices that challenge the party line, that try to poke holes in the myths that Putin and his propaganda machine are trying to spread, uh, we should do it. Uh, I had been on uh, Ms. Boyko's show uh, once before, actually taped it in, in Moscow several years back, and it was contentious and I pushed back, but uh, I feel uh, that it's, it's worth the effort to try to poke holes in their narrative. She uh, does have a graduate degree from Kansas State University, but she is Russian and she does her program from Moscow. Here's another clip. And we've asked you to do this because you are an expert in all these fields and served on the National Security Council for both uh, Mr. Obama and Mr. Clinton. Here's another clip of a program called uh, Crosstalk hosted by Peter Lavelle. Have you ever done that show? Uh, I sounds familiar, so I may well have done it, yes. As an observer, he's extremely anti-American. He is an American. He has a Ph.D. from the University of California at Davis. But he hosts this program, and we'll run this little excerpt and give us your response to what you're hearing. Someone's got to be rational here. Someone's got to be reasonable, but we can't keep expecting Russia to be that someone all the time without some kind of reciprocation. And as you noted earlier, it's it's as though there's been a deliberate burning of the bridges so that there's no going back. And no one wants in Washington, it seems, in, in NATO capitals, no one wants the possibility of real negotiations for some kind of least bad alternative lasting peace. Yeah, well, that's because they, they've created this rhetorical environment where you can't take a word back. You can't because if you're reasonable, that's appeasement. That's Munich. OK, they're in a trap. They're in a linguistic mind trap. 
That's Peter Lavelle, the last voice we heard. What's your, what's your reaction to what you heard? Well, I think the the message that Peter Lavelle and others are trying to send out is that the United States and its allies are in the wrong here, that it's Mr. Putin who has legality and right on his side. It's the West that is out to dominate and run the international system. And the Russians are pushing back. The Russians are legitimately defending their ethnic brethren in Ukraine, which is run by a bunch of neo-Nazis. And it's all lies, right? It is all myths. But the Russians are pretty good at this game. Uh, Part of their strategy here is to build support in Western states, but even more so outside the West and the global South, to try to engender support. And on some level, it's working, right? I mean, I think it's important to note that much of the world is sitting on the sidelines during the war in Ukraine, even though Russia has committed a bald act of aggression. And part of it has to do with self-interest. I think many countries in the global south are investing in their long-term relationship with Russia and China. But part of it does have to do with the degree to which the Russians are pretty good at getting their message out. If you look at what Putin said when he justified the annexation of four Russian, uh, excuse me, Ukrainian regions, he said, you know, this is an effort to fight against colonialism. This is an effort to fight against Western hegemony. So he's trying to tap into narratives in the global south that he thinks will play well, and sometimes they do. After February 24th, in effect, Russia today was shut down. Uh, the ability to, <clears throat> excuse me, watch it on television as country, but you can still see it on the Internet. Do you ever watch it? Um, I rarely watch it. Every once in a while when I'm traveling and it's on in the hotel in which I'm staying, uh, I, I watch it briefly, uh, in part because I think it's important for for me and other analysts, uh, other people who are part of the, the broader debate here in the United States, to, to see what they're saying. Uh, and there isn't much new to me because there is a, a general party line, but I, I do think it's important for people uh, like myself to be aware of the content of Russian propaganda. How do you keep up with this war right now yourself? I uh, watch uh, the the headlines. Uh, I would say that I am now more likely to open a breaking news alert from the New York Times or the Washington Post than uh, than normal, because uh, this is a war that is fast moving. This is a war in which the front line seems to be changing hour by hour. Uh, I also do keep channels of communication open to colleagues in Ukraine, in Europe, and in Russia. Uh, I have occasional chats over Skype or Zoom with Russian colleagues, Uh, not the types that are appearing on Russia today, but people that I've known over the, the years, just to kind of find out what their views are and what the view looks like from from the Russian side of things. We have in our video archive a program that you did in Seattle uh, via Zoom with uh, Walter Russell Mead. And uh, I, it struck me, I mean, you, it was a very civil conversation, but he just wrote a column on October the 4th that I, I would uh, ask your reaction to. He Here's a just a short paragraph. He says, as the mm-hmm. Biden administration scrambles to manage the most dangerous international confrontation since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, it must see the world through Mr. Putin's eyes. 
Only then can officials know how seriously to take the nuclear sable rattling and develop an appropriate response. My first question to you about this is, and we've been hearing this a lot in the last couple of weeks, is this the most serious confrontation with Russia since the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, and I might go go beyond that and say it, it is a, a, a geopolitical moment that is probably more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's because that occurred during the Cold War. This confrontation is taking place in a hot war. As you and I speak, there are <clears throat> missiles flying and bombs dropping and artillery shells being launched it's not between nato and russia it's between ukraine and russia but ukraine is backed by nato ukraine abuts nato territory it's not at all inconceivable that this could spread geographically or that putin could uh, at some point resort to the use of of nuclear weapons and i have to say that my anxiety has has gone up over the the recent days for for several reasons one is that the russians have announced the annexation of four regions of ukraine none of which they completely control so you now have a war taking place on territory that the russians have said belongs to them and in fact they're losing more and more territory in those regions as we speak. The second thing that happened is that Putin has escalated the stakes. If you go back and look at what he said as he announced this move to annex the the four regions of eastern Ukraine, he said, this is existential. This is about a clash between Russia and the West. This is about the future of the existence of Russia. Uh, and so he's kind of sending a message to everybody, but also to his own people, that we can't afford to lose this. This is existential. And then the, the third thing that happened is that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said, we're not going to talk to the Russians as long as Putin is, power, is in power, i.e. no diplomacy. So right now, we really are in this situation in which the Ukrainians are making gains on the battlefield. The Russians have made clear that they think this now belongs to them and it's an existential fight. Uh, and the Ukrainians are saying, we're not going to talk. We're going to win. That's a dangerous situation. I want to go back to Russia today and Peter Lavelle, who was born in Beverly Hills, California, and has been in Russia over 30 years. Here's another clip with a woman named Margaret Kimberly of the Black Agenda Report appearing on uh, Mr. Lavelle's program. I'm sorry to be a nerd about this here, but I did uh, recall over and over again on my program, until it was banned on YouTube, that on December 17th, the gauntlet was dropped. We have to negotiate before it gets hot. And this is where we are right now, okay? So, you know, no negotiations. There's, you know, then people say there has to be a diplomatic solution. Well, it takes two to talk, and one doesn't want to talk because one is to being told not to talk. Margaret. Yes, and there was a time when they were talking. So it's very clear they were told not to. And as for Zelensky's little uh, performance, lest we forget he is an actor, um, uh, if the United States told him to talk, he would. Ukraine has been a de facto U.S. colony since 2014. So anything they say or do is what Washington is telling them. Reaction, sir. Well, I think the idea that, that Ukraine is a colony of the United States is absurd. Ukraine is uh, a partner of the United States, and the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine uh, since its independence and, and especially after 2014, the, the Maidan revolution that toppled a pro-Russian regime. Uh, I do share the view that there ought to be a conversation with Ukraine, with our European allies, and ultimately with the Russians about bringing this war to an end sooner rather than later. I don't think we can tell the Ukrainians 
when, where, and how to negotiate. This is their land. They're the ones who are losing lives. They're the ones who are making the sacrifices. But this is a war that has global implications. It's affecting the global economy. And the geopolitical stakes are enormous. Uh, if, in fact, this is one of the most dangerous geopolitical moments of the, of the recent past, we ought to be having a broad conversation about how to bring the war to an end and how to, how to, how to essentially move from war fighting to diplomacy. Now, the Ukrainians have been doing well of late. The Ukrainians have an interest in continuing to press the fight, uh, in part because they're taking back territory, but also because it strengthens their hand at the negotiating table. Now, whether we are approaching a moment when the sides are ready to talk, I think is, is very difficult to say. One potential factor at play here is winter. And winter matters for a couple of different reasons. One is that there's likely to be less fighting because the conditions on the ground, more mud, freezing temperatures, snow, simply makes it harder to fight. And two, the energy situation globally, particularly for the Europeans who are facing very high gas prices and potential gas shortages as we move into the to the colder weather. So there may be pressure coming from our European allies to try to move the situation toward a diplomatic endgame. But clearly, we are not there yet. I assume um, that people in Russia hear nothing much of the American view of what's going on or the European view in their country. And my question to you is, do you agree with that? But what about people in the United States? Do they hear enough about what the Russians are saying about this? Most Russians have no clue what the debate here in the U.S. or in Western Europe sounds like. Uh, uh, Their media is dominated by the state. It, It was... The case that before the war, there were independent radio stations and independent uh, newspapers, I would say quasi-independent because you couldn't go too far. Otherwise, the Kremlin would come after you. They've basically been shut down and and journalists have, have been leaving the country. That having been said, I do think we are seeing a level of discontent and pushback against Putin that is new, that this has not happened since he's been in power. It's less because people are going to the Internet and reading the New York Times and more because Putin has called up 300,000 reservists and he's made it clear to the Russians that this is a war that requires greater domestic sacrifice because his initial message was this is a quote-unquote special military operation. We've got this. Don't worry about it. Continue going to restaurants, drink your vodka at night. Everything is fine. Now he's saying, we're in an existential war. I'm going to come and take your sons and send them to the front line. And people are saying, what the heck is going on here? So he's clearly in a situation of of political difficulty of a sort he's he's never experienced but that that's mainly homegrown it's not because russians are hearing an american perspective here in the u.s uh you know there is pretty good reporting about how russians see this and the degree to which putin is portraying this as a war against American hegemony. Uh, But I I do think that the fact that Russia has invaded its neighbor, has committed a bald act of aggression, has illegally annexed somebody else's land, uh, that colors the view here in in a, I think, a legitimate way. And it has led to a measure of bipartisanship 
when it comes to supporting Ukraine that is quite rare these days. It's hard to find any other issue out there. Maybe standing up to China comes close where Republicans and Democrats can agree. One caveat I would put out there is that the Republicans may be moving in a somewhat different direction as we approach the midterms. It was interesting to me that I think it was only 10 Republicans that voted with the Democrats in the most recent package of support to Ukraine. That says to me that it's possible that if the Republicans take the House, which they probably will, and if more America First Republicans end up in the House, which I think they probably will, it may be harder for for Biden to conduct the war in the way that he has been doing so. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Earlier in our discussion, uh, Peter Lavelle complained that he'd been cut off of YouTube. And if you live in Washington, and only Washington and, believe it or not, Kansas City, uh, you can hear Sputnik Radio, which is a part of RT, a part of the Russian expense on propaganda. And there's this station here at 105.5 on FM called Sputnik Radio, which I listen to just to hear that point of view. A lot of Americans appear on it. But it's a strange arrangement. They can't shut it down even if they wanted to. Because the radio station is owned by somebody outside of here, an American, who rents that time to Sputnik Radio. And it doesn't have much of, uh, of a audience and, and all that. Um, what do you think about the back and forth that we've been going through since February 24th of trying to eliminate the voices of uh, Russia today on television in this country and, um, and, and every, anywhere but uh, the Internet? They're still there. You can still see them here. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it, it, that's a tough issue, Brian, in the sense that, you know, this is a country that cherishes free speech and has long defended free speech in ways that have been quite con- controversial across American history. Uh, but there's also, I think, a sense that some kinds of uh, of talk, some kinds of propaganda cross cross the line. And that's one of the reasons that you have seen a dwindling willingness to offer airtime to Russia Today and Sputnik uh, and other and other outlets that are that are putting stuff out that is simply factually incorrect and uh, deemed to be deemed to be dangerous. Uh, But it's interesting to me that that here in Washington, you can still get Sputnik Radio. Uh, and I do think that uh, that uh, on some level it is a, it's an indication of uh, the degree to which at least some believe that those sorts of views should be available. Let's go back to Russia today and a gentleman named Ben Norton, who is a journalist with Multipolarista.com. And this is the day after the war started on February the 24th talking about the U.S. versus Germany. This man's an American. This leader who was elected on a pro-peace platform was not able to implement peace because the U.S. has been using Ukraine and fighting to the last Ukrainian to push against Russia. And, And what are Washington's priorities? A lot of this isn't really about Ukraine. This is actually about Western Europe, and it's about Germany. The U.S. has been using this conflict, fueling the conflict, encouraging Ukraine to attack the eastern Donbass region, encouraging the Ukrainian military to aggressively shell and bombard the Donbass region, which we don't hear about in the media. And why? Because the U.S. was trying to turn up the heat in order to pressure Russia to take action, because then the U.S. could use that as justification to impose sanctions on Russia. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. The U.S. was provoking a crisis, creating a crisis. And when Russia was forced to respond, 
out of self-defense, the U.S. says now we're going to impose sanctions on Russian banks to prevent Russian banks from trading in dollars. Right. We're also going to impose sanctions to prevent the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Germany from being certified. And that's exactly what we saw. This was the playbook, and it was played to a T. Professor Kupchin, your reaction? Well, listen, we, we live in a, in a big country, and it's not difficult to find Americans who will take views of the sort that we just heard. Uh, I would characterize the, the view that the United States wanted this war to occur and was manipulating Ukraine and manipulating Germany uh, as absurd. It, it's part of, of a conspiracy theory that is out there, uh, principally on, uh, on the far right of the, of the political spectrum. But, you know, the, the, the Russians do spend a reasonable amount of time looking for Americans who will take their line which is one of the reasons that I'm surprised that they occasionally call me because uh, I don't tow their line and I'm willing to, to fight with the anchors uh, that, that I deal with. Uh, but I do think, you know, that, that it's important to get the message out. But one of the, one of the ploys here is that uh, stations that are interested in putting out an anti-American message spend a lot of time finding Americans that they think will take sympathetic positions. I was on a TV show in India not long ago where there was an American who was saying things that uh, I, I thought were, were absurd. This was about, about the war in Ukraine, not unlike what we just heard on the clip you played. And after the show, I, 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 I kind of Googled this guy to find out who he was and in fact, he was an ex-Marine who was living in Moscow and had moved to Moscow because uh, he was, if I recall correctly, under some kind of criminal investigation here. So these are the kinds of guys that anti-American shows seek and put on their, their platforms. Another thing that Peter Lavelle pushes all the time during this process is that America is going to is, is in the Ukrainian thing to really go after Germany. And you hear they have a lot of guests that say this. We're really interested in shutting down Germany. Where is that coming from, in your opinion? And is there any truth to that at all? Um, there's there's no truth to it at all. Uh, Germany is arguably one of America's closest partners in the world and in some ways becoming more important because Europe's center of gravity has shifted to the east. The UK has left the European Union, is still a close partner of the United States, but doesn't have the same weight and heft as it, as it used to. And Germany has risen in importance. Germany has also, in the response to the war in Ukraine, announced a very sizable increase in its defense budget, which here has been greeted warmly because Germany has underinvested in its defense. And the U.S. wants Germany and its European uh, count, uh, uh, partners to, to do more on the defense front. Where is this coming from? Uh, I, I can only think that it is a, a, an effort to mine history to to go back to world war one and world war two uh, periods in, in which germany uh, was our adversary and in which german americans were to some extent uh discriminated against but it, it, it's it's not a line that that really gets any any traction in American politics. That's not true in Europe, I might add. In Poland, we're looking at the intensification of anti-German sentiment with the, with the right-wing government there recently announcing it's going to go after over a trillion dollars of reparations against Germany. And that's because they are playing and manipulating history in Poland. Here, it simply doesn't get any political traction. The Russian propaganda machine is saying that the United States 
are the ones that blew up Nord Stream, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Um, uh, they need uh, they need to realize that they don't do themselves any good when putting out claims that are absurd. Uh, the United States would have no interest in attacking a pipeline that has already been shut down by the Russians. There's no gas flowing through it. Uh, the United States would have no interest in taking actions that would increase insecurity in Europe about its own energy supplies because that insecurity is already rising in step with prices and concern about shortages over the winter. Uh, it, it, this, is, this is a weird event in the sense that the, the Russians, I assume, are the ones responsible for this, but they're really attacking their own infrastructure. They're attacking a pipeline that they built and that one day, if the relationship with Russia is repaired, they're going to want to use. I can only assume that, that, what, that what the Russians had in mind was to push Europe further off balance and to say, we're not done yet. We can make your energy supplies even more vulnerable by going after infrastructure, pipelines, Internet connections, the electrical grid. Seems to me the only plausible reason that, that the Russians would have, would have uh, carried out an attack. This is a process question. You served in the Obama White House and the Clinton White House and the National Security Council. When you're there, what's the what's your view of what a war like this versus the average person or the people in the media? And you know more than a lot of other people do. Uh, how accurate, uh, first of all, have you found the media over the years? And um, do you have a lot more information than we do? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say that when you're sitting in the National Security Council and every morning you come in and you go through the, the intelligence that came in over, overnight, you get more detail, but you don't necessarily get more information that is critical to your your policy formulation and your and your policy considerations much of of what you need to know is in the public domain and that's because our our press is is very good and the coverage in this country of foreign affairs is is excellent uh sometimes that additional information is critical for example it's possible that we now have information about who carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline and how it, how it was carried out that is not yet in the public domain. And that would shape the nature of, of the response. On the inside, they may have information about the state of play on the ground in eastern Ukraine. Uh, how much further the Ukrainians are likely to go in the coming weeks. What's the state of play in the Russian army? How bad is morale? How bad are their logistical problems? Right? There may be details on those fronts that you don't have in the public domain. But the big picture, those in the public who are reading the paper and listening to C-SPAN and other sources of information have a pretty good sense of what's going on. On RT, they, you from time to time can see a man named Michael Maloof, who's a former Defense Department analyst. And uh, here is an excerpt from the February 25th program, the day after the February 24th beginning of the war. You know, a lot of Americans like myself are still haunted by the lies of 2003. I had a lot of friends that went into Iraq and Afghanistan at that time. Um, you know, suddenly we're being fed all of this information. So how do we know that we can believe the State Department and the Pentagon when they have lied to us before? Well, that's really shocking. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
in this case, in the case of Ukraine, uh, it's not a member of NATO, so Mm -hmm. there's no obligation. However, it doesn't preclude U.S. and other NATO countries from supplying weapons, which they were doing. In doing that, it built up a false confidence, I think, in the Ukraine leadership that NATO countries would have its back. And that's why they basically ignored, uh, along with uh, NATO itself and the U.S. especially, the, the security concerns by Mr. Putin. It was the United States that was driving this, this train all mm-hmm. along. The woman asking the question was uh, Ferran Franchek. Um, start with, did, did the United States government lie to us back in 2003? Well, I, I'm 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 really glad you played this this clip, Brian, because it it gets at a at an issue that I think is central to the discussion today, and that is that the Russians are very good at looking at episodes in the past where things didn't turn out well, and then turning them around and and portraying them as American acts of aggression, of American lies, of American perfidy. So they'll look at Kosovo and the American slash NATO intervention in Kosovo in 99 that eventually led to Kosovo's declaration of independence. They'll look at the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and say, see, the United States is an imperialist country that was attempting to take over the oil fields or conquer these foreign countries. And the problem is that on some level, they are accurately portraying these, uh, these episodes as American ventures that, that didn't turn out well, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq. But they are completely twisting the motivation, right? The U.S. went in to Afghanistan with noble intent. It went into Iraq with noble intent. It didn't get the outcome that it wanted, but that's not because the U.S. was behaving imperialistically. It's because conditions on the ground were not conducive to creating stable liberal democracy. Uh, but the, you know, the Russians and others turn these around and use it as justification for their own aggressive behavior. But what the Russians are doing in Ukraine has no noble intent, right? They are simply uh, engaging in traditional territorial conquest. They're building greater Russia. That kind of 19th century aggressive behavior, there's no resemblance to the U.S. and some of the strategic mistakes it has made where it went into them trying to make the world a better place, but fell short. You mentioned earlier this uh, speech that uh, Mr. Putin made back on September the 30th when uh, he uh, signed the treaties of the four different spots uh, along the coast in in Ukraine. And I've got the speech in front of me. I actually found it in English on the Russians' propaganda site, which we can get on the Internet. Anybody can read it. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you because it kind of uh, dovetails on what you just said. Um, Western, This is Mr. Putin. Western countries have been saying for centuries that they bring freedom and democracy to other nations. Nothing could be further from the truth. Instead of bringing democracy, they suppressed and exploited, and instead of giving freedom, they enslaved and oppressed The unipolar world is inherently anti-democratic and unfree. It is false and hypocritical through and through. Your reaction? It's it's a talking point that gets traction in Russia, in China, in India, in many parts of, of the global south. And it's wrong. You know, the United States going back 1776 has viewed itself as a country that has an obligation to go out and change the world, to make the world more prosperous, more peaceful, more liberal. And on balance, it has succeeded. 
right? How many democracies were there when the United States was born? Very, very few. Since the United States came along, liberal democracy has dramatically expanded its footprint, and the United States has played an important role in bringing that outcome about. If you look at Europe itself, countries that long labored under authoritarian communist communist governments are now members of the European Union and NATO, and they are card-carrying democracies. That's in part because the United States stood its ground during the Cold War and liberal democracy prevailed against autocratic communist uh, alternatives. Now, uh, you know, as, as I said, it doesn't always work. And we are in a moment in which democracy is in recession globally and in which democracy in the United States and in Western Europe is more fragile than we expected. Uh, But the idea that the United States has gone out and made the world less liberal, less democratic, less free, simply is inconsistent with the historical record. Has the U.S. made mistakes? Has it fallen short time and again in its efforts to make the world a better place? Yes, but it's continuing to try to do so, and it's continuing to try to do so in Ukraine, despite Russia's efforts to put the country back under its sway. Here's some more from the Putin speech. By the way, have you read it? I have read it, and I found it uh, pretty chilling. As I, as I said, it really represents a major escalation from where he started, right? On February 24, this was about Ukraine. This was about Russian culture and the degree to which Ukraine was really part of the Russian motherland. This is now a war that is about the existence of Russia, Russia's clash with Western civilization. He's dramatically raising the stakes. Okay, here's some more from the speech. The United States is the only country in the world that has used nuclear weapons twice, destroying the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, and they created a precedent. Recall that during World War II, the United States and Britain reduced Dresden, Hamburg, Cologne and many other German cities to rubble without the least military necessity. It was done ostentatiously and to repeat without any military necessity. They had only one goal, as with the nuclear bombing of Japanese cities, to intimidate our country, meaning Russia, and the rest of the world. Your reaction? Rubbish. Uh, You know, the, the decision to use nuclear weapons was a controversial decision, and the judgment was made that the loss of life that it would entail would ultimately bring the war to a close much sooner than if those weapons were not used, and as a consequence, it made sense. Uh, You know, history will will judge that that decision uh, accordingly. I think that that the the bombing of population centers in Germany, although not consistent with the laws of war, which distinguish very carefully between combatants and non-combatants, gets complicated in a situation in which Germany is conducting the Holocaust, in which uh, uh, civilian Germans are in industries that are part of the war-making machine. So those were certainly controversial decisions amid the uh, geopolitical emergency of, of World War II. But the idea that the U.S. use of a nuclear weapon during World War II gives him, Mr. Putin, the right to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine today, uh, I think is absurd, in part because we now live in a in a world with multiple nuclear powers. And, and, you know, he crosses that line. Lord, where will end up. Are you teaching this semester? I am. What are you teaching? I'm teaching one class 
on uh, nationalism and its rise. Where did it come from? So a lot of that class is 19th century European history, the rise of the modern state, the middle class, industrialization, and how that all contributed to the rise of the nation state as the key political unit in the world. And obviously, nationalism plays an important role in what you and I are talking about. And then I'm teaching a class for the first year master's students at Georgetown uh, in the practice and theory of international politics. This is for students that are in a two-year program, many of whom will be entering public service of one way or uh, one sort or another. I ask you the question because when I was in uh, university, it was during the Vietnam War, and we had the draft, and men had to decide when they were in school which way they wanted to go. Do you want to be drafted or do you want to join? And I asked that, I mean, I mentioned that because what is it like now? Do, you, do the students, I mean, you said this is a very serious situation in Ukraine. Are the students concerned at all about, one, serving in the military, or two, that we are under some kind of a nuclear threat? Well, I do think that that the war in Ukraine has created levels of anxiety that that aren't quite where they were after 9-11, but are, are somewhat reminiscent. Uh, you know, I uh, participated in a town hall meeting. I think it was February 25th, the day after this war began. There were hundreds of students in this large atrium on campus. Emotions were running high. You know, for, for many people, even though somebody, let's say, who is a graduate student today grew up against the backdrop of uh, American involvement in wars in the broader Middle East, this is different because it does involve Russia and it does involve a country that, that has nuclear weapons. And so, yes, I would say that uh, anxiety is is running high. Um, I, is this leading to more readiness to join the military? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that recruiting for the U.S. military is currently running below expectations. Uh, I can offer one interesting anecdote. I had a student in my class last semester this was a class on grand strategy that I co-teach with a historian named John McNeil, who was underperforming and, and you know, sort of not necessarily, uh, he just seemed to be distracted. And we asked him what was going on. And, and he said he was deciding whether to go to Ukraine. This was an, an ex-serviceman who was looking into inserting himself in to Ukraine to enter the war. And as you know, there are Americans, private citizens that are that are part of this part of this war. Um, but no, I don't I don't see a, a, a decisive turn among my students toward wanting to serve in the military as a consequence of this war. I want to go back to Mr. Putin's speech again. This is a whole different angle um, that he talks about the West and the way they see our thought, meaning Russian thought, and our philosophy as a direct threat. That is why they target our philosophers for assassination. Our culture and art present a danger to them, so they are trying to ban them. Our development and prosperity are also a threat to them because competition is growing. They do not want or need Russia, but we do. And then they, he gets a big applause. What's, uh, what, do you, what do you take from that paragraph? Well, you know, on some level, Putin's right. Uh, the United States and its democratic partners do pose a threat to him. And that's because his electorate, and after all, at least there are, you know, there are nominal elections in, in Russia. Uh, they look outside and they see other countries that enjoy freedom where there isn't uh, a state control of the media, 
where there isn't the level of of repression that the average Russian now feels. And Putin has always feared what we call a color revolution, and that is a grassroots revolution that topples illiberal regimes. The Chinese also fear that kind of uh, regime change from from the inside out. So in, in that sense, Putin is right. And I think one of the reasons that he decided to go into Ukraine was that he was afraid that if Ukraine emerged as a successful democracy anchored in the West, that it would raise questions about Russia. Why can't we also be a successful, prosperous, liberal democracy? Uh, and, And Putin has really kept Russia stuck in the past, right? This is a country that has never entered the 21st century, still heavily dependent upon revenue from fossil fuel to to keep the country running. The one reference to assassination that I assume he was referring to was a car bomb that killed the daughter of a prominent Russian propagandist. Uh, and we don't know exactly how there was some recent reporting that suggested that the Ukrainians played, uh, played a role in that assassination. But I think we don't yet have, have a clear sense of what transpired. We're near the end of our discussion. I want to run one more clip. Uh, this is from uh, the program that you you're not in this, but just the one the program you appeared on from Oksana Boyko's program, along with uh, Saurabh Gupta from the Institute for China-America Studies, talking once again about the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, the Europeans also have to deal with the Americans, and uh, some of the American policies vis-a-vis Europe are hard to describe as friendly. And even if we look at this uh, latest uh, attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, which has not been... Um, attributed uh, firmly to anyone yet, but we've seen uh, former Polish uh, minister, foreign minister, Radek Sikorsky, thanking America for blowing up the Russian pipeline, bringing gas to, to Germany. I mean, I understand that they would be extremely angry with Russia and they would feel the need to stand up, for, you know, for certain values. But what about America? Don't they need to stand up for the same values with, with their closest ally? Yes, they do. But, you know, I mean, America has America's alliances are alliances of convenience when it wants it to be an alliance and it can Americans operate like that. And yes, I mean, the defense guarantees will stay. The defense part of it is 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 firm and unshakable. But on all other fronts, I mean, the Americans are competing as much with the Europeans as they're competing with other people. And we'll see that, you know, if we have an America first president in 2024 and 2028, I mean, policy might change and might change pretty radically in this regard. And the Europeans then will be on their own trying to figure out their own destiny. And they're kind of, they're, they're burning down their own bridges at this point of time. Professor Kupchin. Well, you know, I, I think that the, the Russians want to get out the message that the United States is competing with its allies in Europe, that it's behind the attack against the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, and, you know, it, it just it stretches the imagination uh, because, you know, it's really the opposite. And I think that what we've seen before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but especially after, is a remarkable level of solidarity among the world's democracies. It's not just the U.S. and Europe that are coming together to push back against the Russians. It's also the G7, its partners in Asia, including Japan and South Korea and Australia. So I I think in many respects that, you know, even though the end of the Cold War, many people said that NATO is going to dissolve and the partnership with with our Europeans is going to, to disappear, history suggests that it's the opposite. Uh, and right now, there is there is more stickiness and more trust across the Atlantic than than there has been for a very long time. And I don't I don't see that dissipating. I do think that the in some ways 
the the key issue here is to make sure that even as we support the Ukrainians and push back against Russia, that we don't forget that we have hard work to do here at home. Because we have lived through uh, bumpy moments in the practice of liberal democracy here in Italy. A far-right government has just won an election. In France, uh, Marine Le Pen, the head of a far-right government, got 40-plus percent of the vote in the recent election against Macron. So we have hard work to do here at home to revitalize our political centers. And that's important not just for ourselves to get our own houses in order, but also to send a message to the rest of the world that liberal democracy works, liberal democracy delivers. And that's a very important message at a time when the Russians and the Chinese are out there trying to sell an alternative model. This is a moment, I think, when many countries around the world are making decisions about which way to go. And we need to demonstrate that our model is the way to go. Are you writing another book? Uh, I am currently in the process of deciding what my next book is going to be. Uh, I've got some some ideas, but but have not yet landed on a decision. When you wrote the isolation uh, as a book and uh, the United States, uh, did it turn out for you the way you expected in the way of interest on the part of the public? You know, it, it did. And, and I, I started that book well before Mr. Trump was was elected, in part because I saw the the debate in the United States changing, uh, partly in response to the so-called forever wars in the Middle East, but, but also because of the, the erosion of the political center in the United States and the degree to which Republicans and Democrats really parted company making it much less likely that presidents could look over their shoulders and find a broad internationalist political coalition behind them. And then, you know, I'm in the middle of writing this book. Mr. Trump gets elected. He gives an inaugural speech in which he says, it's America first. It's just America first, going back to the America first committee, trying to keep the U.S. out of World War II in 19. 19- 1940 and 1941. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? Uh, And so Mr. Biden has taken the country back toward a more traditional brand of what we call liberal internationalism. But let's see. Let's see where things go. Uh, Let's see how the war turns out and the elections turn out. I think right now the trajectory of American politics and its and its role in the world is 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 very much a work in progress one last question um is there anybody in your lifetime or even before you uh, got involved in foreign policy that you would put at the top of your list of somebody in public life that represents what you believe in the most well i um i think that the united states broadly speaking, got it right, starting with Franklin Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor, not before, because before Pearl Harbor, the United States was, for my taste, too isolationist, staying out of the war. But what Roosevelt did was he cobbled together this mixture of idealism and realism. He built a bipartisan center around the idea of American power, but through partnership, that the United States would go out and change the world, make the world a better place, but it would do so through multilateralism, through institutions, through working with other nations. And I think that mix of realism, we got to operate in a world of power realities and idealism we want to make the world a better place. That's that's the right mix, uh, and it's been hard to implement, but it seems to me that 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 it's the way to go. And I think that in the future we we need to find a way of 
of returning to that mix. And, and it, it wasn't just Roosevelt, right? He really bequeathed that to the presidents that came after him right through Barack Obama. And then it was really with Donald Trump that that compact between power and partnership came apart. So I do think we need to kind of rebuild a domestic coalition behind that version uh, of American leadership in the world. But, and this is an important but, the world is much more globalized and interdependent than it used to be. During the Cold War, it was okay that we were over here and they were over there and there was little contact across ideological dividing lines. Today, we live in a world in which there are multiple global challenges, climate change, global health and pandemics, nuclear proliferation. We can't solve these problems just by working with our fellow democracies. So even as we stand up to Russia, even as we try to push the envelope of liberal democracy, we've got to work across ideological dividing lines and with China in particular. And, and that's simply because there are too many issues out there that cannot be solved without cooperation across ideological and geopolitical lines. Georgetown Professor Charles Kupchin, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.